0: Exodus fifteen. Uh, this is kind of our our swan song on the Exodus series, uh, the story of redemption. We'll be finishing out today. Uh, we were pretty far into Exodus last week, as Kim got us uh, well into the thirties, and we are now um, going back in time a little bit. Uh, and I do think we have to go back in time to get to something of an epilogue uh, on the series of. Um, of Exodus, Um, and and really just more on that in a moment, but it it does strike me that Exodus 15, which has the Song of Moses or the Song of Moses and the Israelites, serves as something of a middle point of the Exodus text, um, really thematically. Now, the climax, of course, is the Exodus itself, Um, no question about that, Uh, but the middle point of the Exodus text that kind of reaches back to what God has done and reaches forward to what God is going to do is really this song, because the song really has two movements to it. One is what you have done, and the other is an anticipation of what you're going to do, Um, and so in that way it kind of divides the Exodus text, and so let's read it um, and then we'll, uh, we'll get after what it might be saying to us today. Uh, Exodus 15. Uh, then Moses and the Israelites, and this is, just, this is right after they escaped through the Red Sea. Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The water heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. The current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense, and I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Lord, who is like you among gods? Who is like you? Glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. When the people's hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom, they will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them they will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the song of Moses or Israel. I would also say that it's our song. It's the song of the people of God. And I want to show you how it is here in just a moment, but... I want to ask just a quick question. If the gospel is true, those of you who are of faith, you believe in what Christ has done, you believe it to be true. And for those who have not yet believed, if you want it to be true, for what does God redeem us? If in the gospel we become redeemed people, for what purpose are we redeemed? I would submit to you that the Bible's testimony to us on that matter and specific to the Exodus and its story for us of the gospel of redemption is that we are redeemed to worship. We are redeemed to praise. We are redeemed to call out The excellencies of God. To blast his praises, to convey his glories. This is the goal of redemption. This is the goal of redemption. Do we not remember the words that God told Moses to tell Pharaoh? Let my people go so that they could go into the wilderness and live their best life now. So that my people can go into the wilderness and have all they've spiritually wanted and dreamed for their lives. So that they can go into the wilderness and be self-actualized and be their best spiritual selves. Let my people go so that they may go into the wilderness and serve and worship me. That's what he told them, so that they would serve and worship me. Let them go so that they may worship me. And we can see that worship is the end goal, even in the verses that follow this text, this this Exodus 15 text, most of which we didn't cover in previous weeks. We actually see two common roadblocks to our worship begin to emerge and so it talks about worship indirectly by way of talking about some common roadblocks the first is this focus looking to the wrong things you know one of the things that I find in myself I see in others also that are like myself is it's easy to worship the things of God and not God To worship his gifts, not the giver. It's easy to kind of get them kind of mixed and confused sometimes. It's like the truth is God does give good gifts and we should be thankful for them. And we should love them because they're gifts from him. But we can ever so slightly cross over the edge from worshiping the giver to worshiping the gifts. Always got to watch for that. And so focus oftentimes is something that leads us into a space where we really are kind of sideways on worship. Looking to the wrong things. It's not just worshiping the gift versus the giver. It's also worshiping other things. At the end of verse 15, the people of God actually go to Moses. Not verse 15, chapter 15. They go to Moses grumbling because they begin to move on and they don't have water. They come upon some water, but it's bitter. So they grumble to Moses. Did you just bring us here to die? We got bitter water. Oh, sure, that whole Exodus thing was cool. But now we're going to die. Is this why we, we went through the Red Sea is to die here? And then, of course, the Lord told him to throw in some trees and the bitter water was made sweet through a miracle of God. Chapter 16 and 17, one of which um, Pastor Kim Harless covered, the manna and the quail. And then, you know, they were grumbling before he provided it. (laughs) And then in chapter 17, they do it again. They're like, okay, man and quail, great, but now we're thirsty. Dying of thirst again. You know, we had that spring back there, but now we don't. And so he has Moses strike a rock and water flows from it. So they grumble to Moses again. Moses then, in turn, just like he did before, goes to the Lord and the Lord provides a means of quenching their thirst. Now, what's gone on to this point? If you've not read further on in your Bible, is 1 Corinthians 10.4 tells us, this is actually God, through Christ, feeding his people. <laughs> Being their source of food and thirst. Imaging that he is their source of all things. And so he's being he's teaching not just giving them a practical gift in the moment according to their needs but also he's teaching them something that he is a god that provides he provides their greatest need in salvation in Christ And so there's a little bit of a pattern starting to emerge here the people grumble who do they grumble to? Moses. Moses goes to the Lord. The Lord relents and gives them a means of relief. If we could just say it plainly, where is the focus of the people of God in these moments? Who are they looking to? Let me say it this way. Let me make it really easy. Who are they grumbling to? Moses, how easy is it to look to man? How easy is it to look to others and make them your God? Or make them, it, maybe if we were to be more charitable, make them your conduit for getting to God. How often we elevate men and women in this world who ought not be elevated. And we know this is the case because then it kind of grows. Later in, verse, or in chapter 17, the Amalekites, we don't know why, they attack the Israelites. And by the way, we get here a beautiful picture of God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility because he sends Joshua out with a sword and says, "'You're fighting the battle.'" This young Joshua is gonna take the army, he's gonna fight the battle. That's kind of the human responsibility side. He's going out and he's actually physically doing things. He's acting in obedience. He's going out and he's going to fight this war against the Amalekites who are attacking. But here's the divine sovereignty side. Moses on a mountain holding his hand up and God says, representative of you and your outreach staff to me, I will do what only I can do and give you victory. And so he does this. But have you ever tried to hold up your arms for a really long time? What eventually happens? You get tired and you got to let him down. And so what ends up happening is, is eventually eventually, Aaron, her, they come up and they lift his hands for him. Now, it's not said in the text. It's not noted in the text, but what's interesting is that Moses tries to do this all on his own. And in case we don't know that this is Moses beginning the process of believing his press, that it does depend on him, and that the Israelites looking to him, that he is actually starting to buy into that. As if this scene isn't telling us, the next scene is actually quite clear about that. For Jethro, his father-in-law shows up and he finds Moses just completely tired and flummoxed and and just kind of, I got to judge all these cases. I got to teach everyone. And Jethro's like, really? Why does it all depend on you? You know it shouldn't. Moses is slowly buying into this. Their focus is on him, and he is allowing it. He is actually enabling it at this point. And Jethro says, Stop that. <laughs> Keep in mind, Jethro is not of the people of God ethnically, he is technically an outsider. As my professor of New Testament says, God can make straight licks with crooked sticks. And he did. I don't know if people actually say that, but he was from Louisiana and he said that. So he was kind of a Cajun. Um, anyway, uh, so you see all this happen and Moses is in full Messiah mode and Jethro confronts him on it. He says, you can't be that. You can't be the singular leader they look to. It's a distraction. It's a focus. It's a focus issue. It keeps people's eyes on you. People need to have their eyes on the Lord. Do you know that something of the dissemination of responsibilities within a local church? Friends, the mere fact that I haven't had to be here for like, be up here preaching for the last month. Is a just good reminder to my own heart and hopefully to yours that nothing should ever depend on me. Yuck. <laughs> I'm not worth depending on. I hope I lead you well. I hope I do well. But do not look to me. Look to the Lord. I'm a human and I'm fallible. And so, our focus is oftentimes not our friend. And it is easy to get out of focus on what we pay attention to. And that is a roadblock to good, God-honoring worship. What are your roadblocks? What are your, the things that kind of steal your focus or, or kind of get you fixated on them? Here's your test. Where do you go when you grumble? Where do you go when you grumble? Here's the cool thing. The psalmist actually teaches us it's okay to go to God and grumble. Because at least you're putting your hope in him. It's okay to go to God and grumble. Now, I'm not saying that you just should sit there for the rest of your days. That's not what the psalmists did either. But they go, and they went to God and grumbled. Who do you go to to grumble? Where is your grumbling fixated towards? You know what the second roadblock it should be pretty evident. It's sin. It's sin. Um, chapters 19 through 24 include the Ten Commandments and then the additional rules and commands. A lot of their setting up of their civic society goes on in those texts. And here's the thing: All these rules, commands, starting with the Great Commandments, here's the thing. The Bible is really clear on it. They were never going to be able to keep it. They were never going to be able to look to and hold these commands true. And neither would I, neither would you. And so, the fact that they wouldn't would always be something of a roadblock in their worship, that there would always be sin between them and the Lord that somehow erected barriers. And that's why in chapters 25 through 31, which follow the rules and commands, we have the tabernacle. The tabernacle and its pattern if you don't know anything about the tabernacle, just the most basic way I can talk about it is it was going to be a very unique and special place to meet God and worship. And it had a lot of uniqueness that I can't get into today, but I do want to say this. It's simultaneously a place where they would deal with sin. Meaning they would offer sacrifices that were meant to be a picture of the greater and final sacrifice that we have in Christ. It was a place where they would have sacrifices. But beyond that, it was also a place of gathering in such a way as to hone one's focus on God alone. Like the imagery, everything about it was meticulous. I mean, like if you go through that part of the text, I mean, God is getting down to the details. I mean, he is an interior decorator. I mean, he is. You can't get away from it. Like he is. He is telling him exactly how to form this building. What color for for drapes? What color for robes? I mean, it just—it's really detailed. But it says something about God. It says that He, in the details, has as its end goal for your focus to be honed in on. Only the one who is worth your worship. The Lord alone. And so imagery and pieces and, and things meant to always bring us back, our distracted minds back to God and God alone. So with all this in mind, let's just go back and look at the song of Moses and Israel so as to stir our own hearts to praise. Because guys and gals, sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in a season where people get reacquainted with their worship. Both college and the NFL football season is begun. And I mention this every year just to remind you, you do not have to go far in America to witness praise. It happens at at and Stadium. It happens in front of our television sets. People know how to be excited about something they truly love. And to give passion to what they truly love. And consider that the next time you think, why do we gather in an auditorium and sing songs and hear from the scriptures and pray and all that stuff? We don't really, do we do this any other, place? we do it at concerts, we do it at stadiums. One of the most visually impressive modern looks to worship. And so with all that in mind, let's go back again to this song. And it really directs us as worshipers. Just out of curiosity, do you come into this room feeling a little bit like, like, what am I doing here? Like, what should I do here? Or just, you know, or just kind of mindlessly follow my leadership or Scott's leadership or other people's leadership? I mean, hopefully we're leading you well. That's actually, I mean, not... I'm not telling you to not follow our leadership. Like if Scott's singing a song, I would say, don't sing another song. Um, If I'm doing this, maybe don't do your own Bible study where you're at. Um, So I'm thinking more meta, big picture. I want to help you just through the song. It really shares with us a sense of what it looks like to be a worshiper. Do you want to be a worshiper? I want to be a worshiper of God? Here we go. In chapter 15, verse 1, Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, "I will sing to the Lord for He is my highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. It is good to sing." of what he has done we gather for worship and by the way it's always been this way the Levites had an element of their group that led in song and were meant to be excellent at what they do this is something that the people of God have done for ages if you're one of those who prefers to come in a little closer to when the sermon happens and leave a little early because you're just not that into music, I present to you the scriptures. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Hey, you may not like it, but he's saying, I want it. Sing to me. Sing to the Lord. And sing of what he has done. Recount what he has done. You discount how much that actually does for your own soul. I mean, sing of what he's done. Guys, I will leave this room today. And eventually, after the budget meeting, I'll eventually wind my way through my day to watching a football game. It is easy before the end of the day for me to forget what god has done especially if i watch my team like many cowboys fans on thursday night did and by the end i think the world's terrible and referees are terrible but that's not where my joy is found it's found in what he has done it doesn't take long for me to forget what he's done I'm guessing for you either. So we come back every week to remind ourselves and to sing. And hopefully some of those songs kind of stick in your brain and you sing them throughout the week and sing of what he's done. Or maybe you have other songs you sing, but but sing of what he's done. Sing of actual actions and deeds of the Lord. Sing about the fact that he's a warrior. Those of you involved in sports, You sometimes will kind of think and and understand that you kind of have to, in the worst of situations, have a warrior mentality. I mean, he's a warrior, he fights. And I love this. Uh, The words that break down how you're to describe him being a warrior in praise and exaltation can also be translated decorate him decorate them you know what that means to decorate them you got to be truthful first of all you don't decorate the Lord in the kind of praise that tells things that aren't true so you decorate them in saying things that are true but secondly decorate them in ways that are creative I mean, just just be creative about it. Like, some of our songs are really straightforward and just basic, plain, doctrine-like. And that's good. Some of them are a little more creative. I know that makes some of you nervous. But there is truly a precedent for this. All throughout the Scripture, we see really interesting ways that God has described, some of which I go, I don't get it. And i got to confess to you, every time we sing any song that says, it's like honey on my lips, I think, I don't want to sing that. I hate honey. (laughs) Full disclosure. Don't look at me the next time we sing a song like that either. (laughs) Focus on the Lord, not me. I mean, can't we just say, like, ice cream on my lips or (laughs) something else? I mean, just... But, you know, different culture, different time. That was prized in sweetness, right? I, so I get that intellectually, but just on a purely experiential basis. That's hard for me. But So I get it. And you won't connect with all creativity, but we are meant to be creative in the way we decorate him. In these passages alone, we see that. The Lord is my strength, my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And it even gets more creative. I mean, that's, that's basic, but it gets super creative from there. Talks about the way in which God's actions at the Red Sea describes them in pretty, pretty interesting ways along the way. Talks about stones, lead. Uses <laughs> a lot of imagery. It's really interesting. Decorate him. So sing of what he's done. Here's the second thing I want to mention that hopefully helps you to just come to worship and be prepared to worship and understand what you're doing in worship. We sing of what he has done, but we also, by the way, tell and speak of his power. Now, there's two things I want to mention on that. Not just what he's done, but just of the attribute, the great attribute of power he has is fixated on in this particular song in fact a lot of songs about the lord fixate on his power mainly because in this world if i can say something i go back to time and time again and that i see a lot of other people going back time to time again is that they feel powerless feel weak lesser than or they feel exposed as a fraud I looked strong, I'm really not. And the promise of Him being powerful where we are not, and He being our advocate and for us, is incredibly. It's gospel preaching to yourself. (laughs) I may not be powerful, He is. I may not be almighty, He is. And He is for me, and He is my Father. And he's my advocate. The second thing I want you to notice here is tell and speak of his power implies that worship is not simply singing. Some of you don't enjoy worship because you think it's just singing. Now, it is singing, certainly not less than that. But it's far more. We worship when we hear the word. When we hear the gospel proclaimed, that is a moment of worship. To hear because the gospel is the power of God. And so when we declare the gospel, we are declaring the power of God. We are telling, we are speaking of his power. And by the way, in this text, we're shown at least two ways that his power is declared. One is in his judgment and wrath. Apparently that's really good. That makes some of us really uneasy and uncomfortable. Judgment wrath, eh. But tell me something. As we can as we think about 9-11 this weekend and those terrorists and the phone calls of loved ones. to theirs. That are still to this day recorded on people's voicemails in their last moments the president at the time George Bush said I hear you they will hear us how many people went yeah at that can I just say to you that there is a sense of a desire for justice and for those who do terrible evil and wrong to be judged in wrath. And you may say, but shouldn't we want them to trust Jesus? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you still, you still praise and tell of God's power and wrath and judgment. Why? Because his wrath and judgment is a reality one way or the other. Either they will experience it and rightfully so, or they will not experience it because Christ experienced it for them. Wrath and judgment's reality. It's just where is it going to be placed? Will it be placed on them or will it be placed on Christ on their behalf? It'll always be one or the other. And so we tell of his power because we can speak of his wrath and his judgment as followers of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, saying his wrath and his judgment Yes, it was poured out, and it shielded me by way of the risen Christ. The crucified and risen Christ took it for me. He's not just powerful in his wrath, but he was powerful in the Son of God to absorb the wrath, whereas I can't. It literally would be hell for me to absorb the wrath of God. Um. But of course, he also speaks of salvation. This is where I think the the song actually gets even more creative than I would have thought the Bible would get on this. I mean, I don't know what kind of stops you in your tracks when you read the Bible, but this, I thought this was interesting. The water heaped up a blast from your nostrils. That's actually not the part that gets me. Um, but it might get you. The currents stood firm like a dam. That's good. That's good imagery. Here's the part that gets me. The watery depths congealed. You know, as a kid, I always wondered. So I get it. The Red Sea parts. But I know how things get at the bottom of a sea where water has been. Like that had been a sloppy mess they walked through. Well, here the Bible actually gives us an explanation by way of Moses, who had experienced walking across it. You know, somehow it congealed. The Lord congealed it. What an interesting detail to sing about. The point being that he used these interesting creative ways, where he interrupted nature, and he used these as their salvation. So he's singing not just of judgment and wrath, but of salvation. The other side of the coin. Tell and speak of his power and judgment and salvation. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, right hand has shattered the enemy. Third thing I want to mention today. If you're wanting to come and feel like you're an expert in worship, (laughs) like you're ready, you know what worship is. Third thing, you look in verse 11. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? Who is like you? This is the song in a moment of reflection considering could we even consider for a moment just just even get to the level of creativity where we could imagine something or someone more glorious than you and so here worship is viewed as a place where we reflect on what he has done and what it means for his promises and how he leads you and me for the remainder of our days Again, this is just another way of preaching the gospel to yourself, but it is worship. It is worship to consider, to ask good questions of the Lord, what he has done, and to consider or reckon the difference between him and other suitors for the title of God. Who's like you? I mean, look at the promises you've kept, God. And what do those promises mean for our future? With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. And then he goes on to say, the people of those lands are just going to, you know, just blow up. They're going to they're shudder. They're going to they're be in terror over the fact that you are with your people and that you're giving them this land. Reflect on what he's done and consider how that might translate to future, to the promises of how he leads you for the remainder of your days here in this world. God's past faithfulness means faithfulness forward, and that is worth reflecting on, reflecting on how glorious he is in his faithfulness, and what that means for my life from this day forward. That's especially important for those of you who are in a time of difficulty, confusion, maybe even suffering, to reflect on his goodness, to reflect on how he's come through, even through your suffering, and to consider what that means for you going forward in this life. Last thing, and this comes from verse 16. And it's about the middle of verse 16. He says, And until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by. Notice each of these points, he repeats the point. <laughs> That's kind of how the this, this song is divided in these repetitive sections. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by. There's no, another way you can say that. Until your people pass through. And in the case of most recent history, it's talking about them passing through the Exodus. But there's another passing through. They're going to pass through the wilderness into the promised land. But there's yet another passing through and that is a passing through to the true promised land and that is to a new heavens and new earth where God is our God and we are his people. Read it with that in mind until your people pass through, until my days are over and I pass from this life to the next. You will bring them, you will bring me In and plant me on the mountain of your possession, which was not a mountain ultimately in modern day Palestine. It was a mountain of the new heavens and the new earth. This was merely a picture, this promised land, an image, a foreshadow. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling, Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. A place of worship prepared by God. This is the fourth thing I want to say. Worship is a time where we are prepared to act in faith that our hope lies in our final future. We take actions in faith that betray the fact that we believe the true hope is our future. When you worship at the altar of AT&T Stadium, your hope is that the referees favor you and that Coach McCarthy somehow has a decent plan. Dak just doesn't get injured again. We have something so much better and so much surer. Act in faith. You now in worship. Worship is us walking for this place already prepared, already challenged, and now going and walking and acting in faith. Like we really believe our hope and future is in the new heavens and new earth and not in all the meanderings of this world doesn't mean we don't treat this world with the grace and touch that the gospel calls us to it just means that we know it's not our ultimate home (laughs) there are things that we're going to do well there's things we're going to do poorly there's going to be things we do well and they don't have the effect we think that we'll have and things we do poorly and they have more of an effect than we ever dreamed The world is an incredibly unpredictable place when sin is so rampant still. But what is not unpredictable is the greater promised land that God has for his people. There's nothing volatile about it. It is promised, it is stable, and it is something you can put your hope in. That passage, today's passage in 15, it ends this way. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider has been thrown into the sea. Does that sound familiar? It's the first words of the song. Echoed. There's a reason she echoes this. Because this is a song worth echoing. Just to be obvious, it's a song worth echoing. And it's why this is a song we are to echo. We are to echo this pattern. This is a song that we will continue to sing in the new heavens and the new earth. Did you know that? Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels, seven plagues, which are the last for them. The wrath of God will then be finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name. Insert beast for Pharaoh. Basically God's enemies. Defeated standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hand, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, did you hear that? The song of Moses is the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteousness, and its acts have been revealed. This is a song we will continue to sing in the new heavens and earth, and it is also a reminder that it is good to sing that your greatest enemy, which, by the way, isn't Pharaoh, is going to be thrown into the sea as well. You see a different horse rider in that same revelation to John. The pale rider, death and Hades, Revelation 6-8, is also cast into the sea. A sea of fire, though, Revelation 20-14, and we are being invited to see in our own lives the slow dissipation, the slow death of death and Hades in the gospel, that they are destroyed because of what Christ has done and powerless in whatever their declarations might be. They are so powerless that they are described in the following ways in the Song of Moses. They have sunk to the depths like a stone. It is sunk like lead. Verse 10. It is as still, meaning unmovable, unable to act as a stone. Verse 16. Which means, in summary, verse 18 the Lord reigns forever. This is a gospel you can preach to yourself. And this is a primer on worship, friends. You don't have to be wondering what it's like to worship, sing of his praises, tell of his power. Reflect on his glories, on who he is. And be prepared always to act in ways that betray the fact that your heart and its hope is set on the new heavens and new earth that he has planned for you. Let's pray.